I heard you had some fodder to start things. I have a rant. I have a rant. And it's all, it's all over the place. I just find it absurd. And uh, a friend of ours, I I won't mention their name, but they were just hurt by some of the stuff that, and that is the racism uh, being aimed at fantasy and sci-fi. People upset uh, about black mermaids and brown dwarves and, you know, uh, it's just, <laughs> and it's across the board, like Star Wars was having it and, and it's, it's Sandman, the Sandman series, everybody was just, just terrified because, uh, you know, what was a white comic strip character, comic strip, graphic novel character 30 years ago was cast uh, as as a black woman and it's just maddening to me and it's the dumbest fucking thing to me and mm-hmm. it just there was another little explosion today on twitter and i'm like come on y'all put your energy somewhere else like put your energy somewhere else anyway that was my rant <laughs> so i just needed to say something because it's just like it's middle earth and it, it's not real it's not real. And even yeah. if it was, you know, it's yeah. okay. You know. Well, and then um, to like swing this back around, something that I noticed even more so in this fringe than all of the other fringes that I've uh, participated in, it was, it was, it was colors all over the rainbow and um, it was queer. It was, it was just a big, beautiful, all over the place community. And I felt like so many of their works were honored this year and were actually gonna honor one of those works here today one of those excellent excellent artists so why don't we just say welcome to theater theater the theater podcast for theater people made by three theater nerds from the la theater scene i'm cj merriman i'm scott leggett bailey would normally be here with us today but we have for you today a very very special artist spotlight a bonus series highlighting the artists that you should be keeping an eye out for and one of our excellent nominees for the first ever Theater Theater Playwright Award at the 2022 Hollywood Fringe, Dan Lovato, a.k.a. Pastiche Queen. Welcome. Pastiche Queen is a non-binary Latin indigenous interdisciplinary performance artist. They've been featured on Apple TV's Dear Viola Davis. Facebook's Queer Community Leaders of Color Initiative, and the Red Cat Theater and Artist Residency Program. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Yes. Thank you all for having me. I truly, uh, Fringe uh, may have stopped for the audiences, but Fringe continues for all of the people that uh, produce and push shows up. We're still promoting a lot of our work. Um, Mm -hmm. Fringe for a lot of folks is not the end of the product is usually just the beginning for a lot of shows Absolutely. and that's definitely been the case uh, for a lot of our community members especially the recipients of the um 
fringe scholarship as well for for yeah, it. congratulations on that by the yeah, way yeah you're here yeah um, <laughs> very very grateful for that and to the fringe committee for just um being able to actually put their money where their mouth is um yeah. as far as organizations go and giving queer and neurodivergent and um you know differently abled bodies um the ability to actually have their work seen and heard uh, in a way that is not usually the case for yeah, people, I guess. And, <laughs> and celebrated too pre-show we were talking just a little bit about the theater community in la and, and and all that but like i just remember being at that award ceremony uh and seeing all the faces and bodies and and it was i don't i i don't think anybody was pissy about anything like it was just cheer 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 and um and then COVID, COVID, COVID. And then COVID, COVID, COVID. <laughs> I, I, I did, in fact, get COVID that night. But oh. I got... did you get sick, Dan? I didn't. I didn't. Oh. I that see, I'm I'm a writer first, which means I'm an introvert. So uh -huh. all of these, I'm an introvert disguised as an extrovert, and so all of these actor types are like blah 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 la 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 la, and I was like going from corner to corner to corner. <laughs> well, I'm gonna be quiet and social with you now. Oh. Right, right, yep, yep. I'm, uh, as much as I like being the center of attention, I do not like schmoozing. <laughs> I I don't either. It's not my thing, and I'm the same way. I'll inevitably find at least one other person I know, and that person's my best friend that whole night. That or the dog. Yeah, that or the dog. I'll yeah. find a dog and be like, this is, the, me, and, me and her, we're good. We're, we're good. This is where the energy's going. This is our party. Yeah. I found as I've gotten older, I'm way more, well, and COVID also made me find out that I'm just an introvert that knows how to extrovert. Like, yeah, yeah I, put, I can turn I, it on. I can turn it on pretty good, yeah. but yeah, it's, it's hard and it takes focus for me to do that. Yeah. Totally. So uh, we here at the pod, we're connoisseurs of context. And so we would love to know, can you give us a little bit of background about yourself? Where'd you come from? Like, where'd all this amazingness start? Um, yeah, so I grew up um, in a not so nice part of Denver. Um, <laughs> and um, it's basically all been gentrified where I'm from. So like where I'm from doesn't know I'm from there anymore, mm. um, which is its wow. own weird thing that I've had to deal with, um, especially going back, uh, being like wanting to share uh, these bits and pieces of myself that I've, I've rediscovered in LA and rekindled. And I try to bring them back to a community that doesn't actually exist anymore, um, mm. which is weird. Um, I went to, so I grew up in that sort of situation, but then I went to a private school. Um, mm. So I was like this kid in like shitty part of Denver. And then I would pass two sets of railroads and then get to school. And then I was like, you know, the poor brown kid who was at school with all these rich white kids. Mm -hmm. um, and then I would get home and then the kids in my neighborhood would be like, why you talk like you're white, you know? Um, and so I was like always too brown for the white kids. And I was too blanquito for the brown kids mm -hmm. because I had, I had this like amazing privileged education, but the result of my education is that it pulled me away from my community or rather it alienated me from my community. Mm. Um, and so I, and, and then stuck on top of that, the fact that I'm trans stuck on top of that, you know, the mixed race identity too, of being, you know, Latin and indigenous and having um, a lot of these white roots as well, uh, you know, because of colonization and us and all that. And mm -hmm. um, it results in the work that I put out. I, I write a lot of um, my point of view, uh, 
I think is pretty unique in that sense that I've always um, I've always been so, sort of an outsider, uh, no matter what context I'm in. Yeah. And so I've always um, just been observant as a result. Um, and I'm a, a criminal linguistic playwright in that I just steal language as I hear it. Um, yeah. And I was I've about to say, to, that makes for yeah. a good artist when you're a good observer. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I like to steal language and then, and then play with it. Um, mm-hmm. And and I think a lot of that comes from the fact that, you know, I, I was a lonely kid for a while who was just kind of ostracized and, and just different. Um, and instead of picking apart, like, why am I different? I was just like, oh, this is language. This is cool. These are books. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Musicals, you know? uh, August Wilson, that's, that's sort of his story, too, is that he felt very alienated all through his life. He had, you know, weird relationship with his dad. He was, you know, pretty much raised by his mother and all that. And what he would do is he would go and hang out at places and just listen and listen to accents and and rhythms of language and all that and uh oh and then he wrote probably the greatest theatrical cycle in in in, in history you know as a result. so you know no, no big deal but uh no those are good good footsteps to follow in i mean yeah, you know, i don't mind and it sounds like i i i can identify with some of, of what you went through. I was an Air Force brat. So like mm-hmm. I went to 12 different schools by the time I graduated high school. Yep, so yep. I was always in a new place and never like, you know, when I found theater and when I found that I could be funny and I could do mimicry when I was in middle school, then that was, you know, <laughs> that was my ticket to you know, getting into different groups and different things like that. But I think that we're all, I think all artists feel a little alienated and, and, at some point but but oh, that's yeah. a, that's a, you have an extraordinary sort of collection of 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 things uh behind you that all radiate throughout your play and we'll get we'll get into yeah. it you know. so so then obviously you were big into literature and language how did you then come to theater and ultimately writing are yeah. you are you mostly a writer do you do perform like or or you just do everything because you love it so I'm one of those weirdos that just like, if there's a way to create, I will. Mm. Um, and so like, when I was really little, I, um, I was a musician, I wanted to be a music teacher. And I, I so I learned to play a bunch of different instruments. Um, and, and was in orchestra and band and jazz and all that. Mm-hmm. And my favorite thing about playing jazz was when we soloed, I got to go out and perform. And it uh-huh. made me that I was like playing the music. The music was just part of the performance. Like I would do all this theater around me walking out to do my solo. I would like oil my valves and like, <laughs> and, like make it look like I was getting ready to tear the right. because I was, but like, I was performing the act of getting ready. I wasn't actually. Oh, yeah. No, that's um, fucking great. And so I just, I, I learned to really latch onto that. And then I was a speech and debate kid. Yeah, mm. me, me too. Me too. Yeah, I was, I did uh, a, a humorous interp, dramatic interp and duo. Yeah. yeah. So I, I had already, um, I was adapting and writing all of these books that I had loved when I was a kid. And I was running like five or six pieces a year. So I was constantly reading, constantly um, learning the form of storytelling and all these different ways you can tell a story. Uh, and then all of that sort of built up to me. Um, when I was in college, I double majored in uh, 
politics and theater with a focus on directing and playwriting. Um, and then queer theory was like my, my political stuff was, was what I was doing with queer theory. And I realized that the queer theory was making my playwriting a lot stronger because my characters were writing from a philosophical perspective instead. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and then my, my background in, in adaptation lent me this really, um, this really cool lens that I, I look at literature through in terms of, um, I never look at any piece of writing, like capital W writing, any piece of writing as just itself. Like I'm always looking to transform it. Hmm. Um, and so like when I, I got into LA, I'm, uh, I have my MFA through uh, the Art of Acting Studio, Stella Adler. Um, okay. And we had a big focus on like devising our work and also writing your own work. And so it all just sort of clicked. Um, I've always been writing. Mm. like I've always been journaling that kind of kid um because yeah. I had a lot of alone time mm -hmm. and um you know when when you're alone you talk to yourself yeah. and so I just <laughs> yes. so I just learned like you know I a lot of people have inner monologues I have an inner dialogue and it's just always running and sometimes I can just sit and listen to it and be observant and listen to my own inner dialogue and that's where the plays fall out you know mm. that's fascinating that's amazing yeah I get yeah. some of my best work done talking to myself. Hundred percent, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Totally. Yeah, I was. I remember when I was like, maybe nine or ten, that I got really worried that I was crazy because I would talk to myself. That you know, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, uh, because I was also an, uh, an only child. So on top of being a military brat, I was an only kid, and I had. Uh, I was very grateful for the relationship that I have with my parents who were lovely and supportive and uh, of all the weird stuff that I ever wanted to do. But yeah, there was a point where I was just like, am I, am I cracking up am I... <laughs> at nine oh, or yeah. 10, you know? Um, yeah. The burden of the artist, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> the burden of the artist. The burden of the artist. Um, what was the first play you ever did? Ooh, um, I was, it had to be the nativity. Um, <laughs> I, I, I went to like religious school for like preschool. Huh. Um, and I, I don't know which of the characters I was playing, <laughs> um, but I do recall tying my shoes, putting on my little robe. I'm sure yeah. I had like one line, but I knew everybody's line. Oh yeah. Sure, oh, yeah. sure, okay. sure, yeah. It's like, I had to be like three or four. Aww. Um, and it was like, I mean, you know, it wasn't a huge deal, but I was like, this is it. <laughs> and then, you know, I, I've always been a ham. Like my mom, there's a video somewhere floating around um, where I'm tiny and I'm, I'm like itty bitty, like crawling, like maybe two and a half, three. And I'm doing these little tiny push-ups. And I had, this, I had this thing called like my trick, which is where I would go on all fours. And then I would lift my right leg up into the air. And when people would do, when I would do my trick, everyone knew to go, yay. Uh -huh. And so I, I, I do three push-ups, and they go one, two, three. And then I do my trick and everyone goes, yay. <laughs> and I smile. Like there's this fat grin that goes on my baby face. Uh -huh. and I was like, that literally right there is the moment. That's, oh, that's, that's the that's good it. shit. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, it's awesome. I love that. Amazing. Um, do you have... This is a tough question. Do you have a favorite thing that you've written and also a favorite thing that you've performed? Yes, and they're different. Um, so I perform a lot. I, I mean, I perform my own writing um, pretty much ubiquitously. 
Uh, my favorite thing that I've written, um, I wrote this uh, slam poem called Primera. Mm -hmm. um, right when my mom got promoted, she's like the high, she is the highest ranked uh, Latina female in the history of her department. Hmm. Um, oh, wow. And she, she's a cop. Um, and so, which is a whole other story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. We have very interesting dinner conversations. Wow, I bet. I bet. Yeah, when a cop raises a militant queer. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it just, uh, yeah, so I, I wrote this one called Primera and it was, um, my mom got promoted to like this, this the highest ranked position any female Hispanic woman has been in in the history of Denver of the Denver Police Department. Um, at the same time, I got into grad school, and I'm the first person in my family to go to college, hmm. uh, and so it was just this big, full circle moment. And I performed it the day before we both started school, uh, oh. and so and it was and it was it's primera, which is you know the first in Spanish and. Mm -hmm. For both of us, we were, we were it, um, mm. and it's just about like you know, being, being Latin and being in a school where, or in a classroom where you're one of maybe two other Latin kids and how that feels, you know. Um, and I know that my mom had this whole other thing going into school, feeling lonely, having um, you know already done the whole mom thing and gotten her kids out of the house, and then she's going back. And so I was like. I know how lonely this classroom is going to make you feel. Mm. And I need you to know that like, that's in our blood too, you know? Um, wow. And then the favorite thing I've performed, I selfishly, I really, I love my solo show. It just, <laughs> it just hits right. It, 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 it's everything I wanted to, to show. I, um, <clears throat> the, the solo show opened right when I hit um, like six months of sobriety. Mm. Um, and so it's very, it's very reflective of the growth and the healing that I've been able to do in getting treatment um, for right for various things, um, and so it, it 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 it's one of the only pieces. Uh, those are the two pieces, especially. Um, I write a lot of them for my head, but those are a couple pieces that I really wrote straight from my heart, uh, and I think that's why they just they hit so right for me. I just I could perform them fucking ten times a week and never get tired of either of them. Ooh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, while we're talking about your works, let's get into level one Gygax and of Branch of Beast of Beatnik. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this this show blew my ass off. Like, <laughs> like I I I just got in my first D and D campaign in the middle of COVID <laughs> and it was some, and I'm a big high fantasy nerd anyway. And people are always like, what do you mean you don't do D and D? So like, <laughs> I loved it for that, but I just, from the second I saw you on stage, just barely moving. Uh, I, I, I knew the show wasn't starting for another couple minutes, but I was pissed off that everyone else wasn't shutting up and just watching you the whole time. <laughs> I've only ever seen that happen. I went to see this crazy long opera called Nixon in China. Oh my God. And like 10 minutes before it started, this woman came out on stage in the middle of the stage in traditional Chinese garb. And she started doing Tai Chi on stage oh. and people are talking and getting in their seats and everything. And one by one, I'm getting chills just thinking about it. One by one, 
the rest of the cast came out on stage and joined her in Tai Chi. And it was on this three quarters thrust stage. And eventually the entire cast was on stage moving in complete unison. And the opera hadn't even, they haven't even played the first note and the audience was silent. That's the overture. That was yeah. the overture. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So, I, so I haven't, and I just, I really dig that. Um, there's so many things I want to say about this piece, but like you, you drew me in from thing one when I sat down and you were moving and then to get to have the pleasure of reading it and know that that character's name was the soul tree. I was like, come on, this is fucking great. Um, God, I'm just looking at my notes now. <laughs> I I have pages and pages of notes. Scott, you got yeah. a, You got the chance to read it as well. Yeah. I, there's, can you talk a little bit about your D&D &D experience, what that <laughs> did for you? And when, how old were you when you first started getting into it? Because I just was sort of knocked out by how you used it structurally, how you used the game as a tool to, to tell this play, to structure this play. And it just made it. Psh. So, yeah, when when did you? try uh, that for the first time yeah. <laughs> i've um i've been playing D, D since i was like 10 or 11. Mm -hmm. um i played it with you know in in elementary school um and i mean we liked playing it because we were at like we were at like a religious school and so like we knew it was like uh, it, oh, satanic yeah. panic yeah, type yeah. shit we were like yeah roll the dice burn me <laughs> <up>. <laughs> and so we just like we we really fucked with it and and at that point i was i mean i I, I've always liked making sound effects with my face. I've always liked um, miming. I've always liked playing multiple characters. Like that's always just been my shit. Yeah. Um, since I was a little kid, I would tell stories and I would play everyone in the story. And so it was very natural for me to become a DM. Yeah. Um, and so I was just, I was running games and um, I didn't actually realize that like there were pre-written modules. I've been like a homebrew kid since right, I started. Right, right. Yeah. Those are the best yeah. ones always. Yeah. So I've just always been running these homebrews and I, I, part of our grad school, um, you put in a, uh, like your capstone project is you have to write a story or write a, a one person show based on someone from history that's dead. Um, and I, I, my original submission was for Bertolt Brecht. I really wanted to do a Brecht. We are literally covering him in our next play. Our next series oh. is Brecht. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to do Brecht does Brecht. Um, <laughs> and I really wanted it to be this like very heady intel intelligentsia sort of like, mm. you know, Brecht. But then like make fun of the fact that it's all Brechtian and do protections and all shit. The studio did not bite. They were like, listen, like, that's fun. That's not the assignment, kiddo. Um, and so I was like, fuck it, back to the drawing board. And then Gary Gygax just kind of, I was like, who who invented D&D? &D? And then Gary Gygax just kind of fell out of the ether. And I was like, who the hell is this guy? And then there's this amazing book. I would not have been able to write this project without this book. It's called Empire of Imagination. Oh, um, yeah. The biography of Gary about how he invented about how him and Dave actually invented the book or invented D and D. And so I read that book and I was like, okay, I have this story and I have this form as far as the game goes. And like, how do I get this content to resonate with this form? Because this form exists because of this content. Sure. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, in improv, we have mapping, right? Where like you're doing uh, you know, you're doing a breakup scene, but it's actually like, 
uh, a father and a son and the son is like listen this just isn't working it's not you it's me like (laughs) funny is that it's like you're watching a breakup scene but it's actually a different context Mm -hmm. and so I was like how do I map Gary's life story over high fantasy um and then once I started that I was like I just want to start him in a tavern and we're just gonna go um (laughs) so I sat down and I literally played the game as Gary, like in, in character, um, with myself, cause I'm a crazy person. Um, mm-hmm. and at every important junction point in the, sh- in, in the script, I would roll the dice and that's just what the consequences were. So God in damn, the actual that's great. script, yeah, like when I got to it, whenever I was stuck or whenever something big happened, I was like, all right, fuck it. And I rolled the dice, whatever that was, that's what it was. And I had to roll with it. Um, and so the, the first show- roll for perception in the script, our audience was in, like everyone laughed. <laughs> and it just, it, you know, at that point, I, I straight up, I wrote the script in two nights because wow. the script, just it just kept making itself. I was like, what's next? What's next? What's next? You know, it felt like a, a proper D&D session. I was like, I don't want to stop. And mm-hmm. I didn't until I was sitting there and Gary had given his soul away to everyone. And I was like, oh, that's exactly what we would have done. Yeah. So it was cool. so lovely. It was so much fun. Um, I, two, between the two award panels that I was on and just seeing friend shows and stuff, I'd say maybe 70% of the shows I saw at Fringe were one-person shows. And they are certainly uh, way more COVID-safe than a big cast show. Um, they're certainly, I'm guessing, easier to produce. Uh, but they can be hit and miss. And, like, the fact that you were playing characters the way that you were playing, like, you were playing all the characters and everyone had a different physicality and a different voice. And the way you seamlessly switched between the two of them, like, I saw so many where it was like, and now I'm going to play a different character. I'm going to turn around and then turn back around and be somebody else. (laughs) That blew me away. I mean, it kept it moving, obviously. But then also, I... Your tech person, whoever was running that board, was tight as hell. Anna Cairo. Anna Cairo. I will oh my shout give that I shout will, out. Yeah. I will shout her name until uh, I will halloo her name until the babbling gossip of the wind knows it. I swear <laughs> to God. Anna Cairo. Uh, Oof. She straight up, she synchronized things to my fingertips. Oh, yeah. Um, we did tech, and straight up, we only had like, I think, two hours for tech. Yeah. Fuck. And Fuck. Every single show was tighter than the last one. Mm. And like, I didn't even give her notes. She was just like, we'd finish the show and she'd go, I know what we can do next time. And I was like, okay. And then straight up, just pop, pop, pop. Like every single moment she was, she just brought to life in this amazing way. And Greg Crafts as well, my lighting designer. Um, Greg. Just, Greg. Greg's good, yeah, good, good people. He's just good peoples. Yeah, good yeah, peoples. No, yeah. Exactly. Him and Jen both. Like they're just, yeah. they're just good folks. And so Greg is also a big D&D nerd. So he he read my script <laughs> and I put all these magical spells in the script that I like say. And he was like, you know, we have to put these in now as effects. And I was like, we don't need all that. And he's like, no, I need that. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> It's very collaborative that way. I get um, also uh, a little insight to CJ. I've now been in LA almost 16 years. Studio Stage was the first theater that I performed in when I moved out here. Mm -hmm. Little baby 22-year-old CJ. I played Lysander in a dance version of Midsummer Night's Dream on that stage. That's awesome. And it 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 was a theater and dance company called Thrance. 
Thrash. And we did all of our shows in that theater. If we didn't do, we did dance shows in a bar that no longer exists. But I have a, I, the smaller a theater gets, the more I'm turned on. Like I, oh, yeah. I love a good, small, intimate space. And that and space is the what hell I need. out of it. Yeah. That's what I needed. I, I straight up told them, you know, especially in the, in the wake of COVID, everybody mm-hmm. was like striving for intimacy. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I wanted wasn't just intimacy. I wanted collaboration and connection. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what D and D is, is, is it's not just one person telling a story. It, it, you are all part of the story, you know, and that's the, the essence of it that I wanted to capture of, um, doing the solo show inside the solo show, because then it made yeah. everyone bear witness as part of the world. And then you're complicit in everything that happens afterwards because you've actually been invited into it now. Mm-hmm. You know, you're part of it now. Um, it was also such a pleasure getting to read, I mean, getting to read it in general after having seen it, but also it was such a pleasure reading um, Magma when you go into the spoke. Now, are those spoken word pieces that you would use before? Did you write them especially for this? So I wrote Magma specifically um, as part of therapy, mm. um, just in general. I just needed to put that story somewhere. And then when um, this got picked up for Fringe and I started really doing it, I was like, this, you know, when a piece just keeps calling back to you and it's like, mm-hmm. hey, I'm here, yep. you know, I, I was like, okay, let's, let's actually do something with this. And then my mom and my grandma were both like, we're going to come out for your show. And I was like, okay, this, it has to be in here now. And so I didn't tell them about it um, at all. And so like, I got their reactions like live in the house, um, you know, doing this very intense piece about intergenerational trauma, uh, which <laughs> maybe wasn't fair that I just spring that on. It's <laughs> <laughs> the also, best thing to do with the boomer generation though. Right. It's just like, listen guys, like yeah. we're going to be talking about this and you need to know that like a lot of these people are about to know my business. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's awesome. Um, um, Go ahead, Scott. Oh, I just I, I, I just need to do a shout out because you have a Pink Floyd reference in there. Not just a Pink Floyd reference. You have a specific a Sid Barrett reference in here. And I'm, I grew up, I was a huge Pink Floyd nerd. And that story is so fascinating and sad and complicated and in so many ways. And I just wanted to give a tip of the hat because... It's a, a story I don't think we'll ever hear. Like, I don't think we're ever going to see the Sid Barrett biopic. No. And if we do, it's not going to be done right or well. And it's not going to really be. Um, because, you know, four people lost their friend, almost lost their band, and had to artistically completely reinvent themselves and what they were doing and who was going to lead that and whose voice was going to be heard. And, you know, and then they make a series of masterpieces. But the story of Sid Barrett showing up while Wish You Were Here is being recorded with his head shaved and no eyebrows and weighing 200 pounds. And they were just like, who is that guy? Yeah. <laughs> so so respect, shout out. I just wanted to say <laughs> it. Uh, I, mean, I really identified with him, you know, I um, as as someone uh, who also um, for, for a very long time struggled with undiagnosed mental illness and untreated mental illness. Um, Sid really spoke to me when I was not getting treatment because I was like, well, look at the beautiful art that someone who's not getting treatment can make. Mm, Um, Mm -hmm. But then 
now, it, it, now when I did get treatment, my perspective on him shifted because it went from this thing of like, wow, look at this possibility to like, look at this tragedy. Yeah. Like what, what if this person actually got the help they needed, actually had the support that they, that they really needed instead of friends who were slipping LSD into his coffee. Right. And then mm-hmm. he was like, why am I tripping balls today? I'm not doing any drugs. And his friends not telling him that they had dripped LSD into his drinks or like, yeah. because they wanted to keep inspiring him. It's just, it's so yeah. fun. And um, then, and then afterwards, the fact that they, that he couldn't record, I mean, they, there's two vague solo albums but they took forever and they were painful for everybody involved to try and do and so we never got him to you know he never came back he went and never came back and yeah yeah and him and gary both kind of suffered the same uh fate in that way in that like they both got too famous too fast and it cost them basically everything Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and, and that's the thing that i I think that's a, the a point that I wrote it from, um, especially when we go into like the the bat poet and 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 the wolf story. We, um, you know, what what does it cost you? Like, what what does a poet do when they've lost a friend? Um, is yeah. is the, the the root of that entire story? Yeah, um, because it's playing with with the same kind of grief that I think um, was Sid's undoing and was Gary's undoing. Um, wow. Is that they didn't. They didn't do what they needed to do when they lost what they couldn't lose. Yeah. Yeah. And it's Beautiful so hard. And sad and, yeah, yeah. It's so hard watching somebody go through that too, because you, because loving someone and caring about someone is not enough and it's not like you can do the work for them. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's sad and it's, it's very sad. Yeah. Um, I wanted to share just a couple of lines <laughs> that I thought were so fucking beautiful. Uh, listeners, I want you to close your eyes and enjoy. <laughs> um, I've turned a siege into a renaissance and my age of enlightenment is just beginning. Yep. This is a great one. So it's every beautiful, day. Beautiful language in here. Yes. By the way. Really, Dan. It was just. Oof. So every day I'm making eye contact with catastrophe. So every day I repeat the names of my demons so I can ask them to leave. <laughs> that one hit me between the eyes. Right. Uh, I, do you just have people walk up to you after shows and just thank you? <laughs> um, people come and, and um, they'll, they'll DM me lines. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah. Like I was driving home today and I thought um, just because trauma ages you doesn't mean it wisens you. And I'm like, mm, oh. that was a good one. Like, hey, thank you. Like, <laughs> I've also, with this show in particular, especially with more femme audiences, um, because a lot of my, the Bat Poet show is about motherhood mm-hmm. um, and about like your relationship with your mom and with your family. And I've had a lot of femme folks in particular come up to me and um, just hug me, like, mm-hmm. uh, which is, I don't know, t- to me, um, there are a lot of things in those points of contact that don't need to be said. Mm. Um, which is what I, I don't know. I, one of my directing professors always said, um, the more specific you are, the more universal it hits. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I felt that with, with this show in particular, I wanted to be so, so hyper-specific to my truth and where I actually was at in that moment and in that point in my life. Um, and I think for a lot of people, we were all in that sort of weird transition bullshit of post COVID. What the hell are we, you know? 
Well, it showed that you were just putting yourself out there completely, and that was another reason why it was so... It was such a great show that it was so... That it just kept... I was laughing, I was crying, I was everything during that show. It's so clear that you left it all out there on the stage, and it was beautiful. Um... I I also, I'm sorry, I had to share some more lines from this play that I loved so fucking much. Um, And let the pressure in your heart turn your feelings into diamonds on your tongue. Come on, everybody. Come on. And then uh, a real easy one that I don't know why they're not saying it all over the place. Because recovery begets Mm self-discovery. And I love that, too. Um, I mean... I I will I talk about it on the pod all the time to the point that I'm sure the guys are sick of it. I love therapy. So oh. um and I yes, I think I just stole what you wanted to say. Your final say for level one guy Max <laughs> is get therapy. Just get it. <laughs> do it. Just fucking do it. I know it's scary. Um, but honestly, truly, um, if you've done the college process, uh, then you already know how to pick your therapist. Like, it's not about the renown or whatever that they might have. It's about where you fit. Yeah. Uh, and the connection that you can have with them. Yeah. Yeah. Some, the, some of the therapy I've had, some of the best therapy sessions I've had were with people. I'm like, there's no way this isn't ever going to work. And it does. So, Yeah. Oh. My best therapy sessions are when I know it's scheduled and it's the day of, and I'm like, you know, I don't think I really have much to talk about today. <laughs> Those are usually the ones where I'm like ugly crying by yeah, the you end end of it. just weeping, you know. <laughs> but you can tell. I, what was that? Sorry, say that again. And you're like, you know, I think I had a good day today. And then you. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm suppressing. I'm suppressing. <laughs> but uh, Dan, but it, it's it it's one of the things that's sort of clear to me in reading this is that you have gotten to a point. Listen, the great the greatest theater in the world is when somebody stands stands still and just tells their truth and you don't stand still in this but uh, but it, it it you can you can see that you're standing tall with the truth and where you're at in that process and i just want to share just there's just a couple of lovely lines that i wanted to share too that i thought were just so simple and elegant um as between uh beast and little bat uh so what can i do with the sequoia left on my spine the last time i saw you uh i don't know but i do know that everyone's experience has worth and what a just a simple elegant ornament to hang on that proverbial tree i just i yeah this old tree if you will if this old tree you will, yes. <laughs> but yeah it um Thank you. Thank you for sharing you in it. You know what I mean? Like, we don't say that enough to artists and writers in particular that tell stories from such a personal and important place. Yeah. Thank you for your service. Yeah. And and it's just like (laughs) then you you connect to it and and it rings true and it's fascinating and compelling and that's what we do art for right what also makes you realize too that you're not alone i mean i think when anyone's going through any kind of trauma in their life or just a life change or whatever you you isolate my natural thing is to isolate myself and cut myself off and then you have one conversation with one person it's like oh my god no i'm not alone and 
now you've gathered a whole group of people into a room for us all to realize, hey, guess what? That thing you're going through, you're not alone. And there's something really beautiful about that. Yeah. And especially to have that have that gem in fringe because I saw some real great stuff and I saw some not great stuff. And then <laughs> and then plays <laughs> Yeah, and then, I mean, but that's also I, I go on and on about this on the pod too, that that's what's beautiful about fringe. Do you have a project you want to try? Do you have twenty five hundred bucks to throw at it? Great. <laughs> Everyone gets to do it. And and I love that about it. And you know, I've I've been parts of shows that have moved on and done something with it. And then I've been parts of shows that they were just these beautiful little glimmers that are now in the distance. And that's also kind of what's the beauty about theater, right? It happens and then it's over. It happens and then it's gone, you know, and you know, it's memory and it grows into something else when it's good. When it's great, it grows into something else. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, so I have some more questions for you. Some, uh, so get ready. Uh, who is your favorite playwright and or theater artist? Okay, so these are different. Um, so my favorite playwright, uh, probably I would say, God, all my playwright friends are going to be upset with me now. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, not to do the safe route, but honestly, like every time I read Shakespeare, I learn something new. Mm. Um, and it's such a basic bitch answer, but like Shakespeare. It's not a basic bitch answer. No, we were, we were, Bailey and I were just having this conversation recently about endurance and how we can let some things go. Some things are okay to let go. Oklahoma. So <laughs> you can reimagine it all you want. Like it's, it's, it's done its time. And there's something about the genius of Shakespeare. We keep, why do we keep talking about, about him? Because he tapped into something and did change language. And like, he invented what, like over a thousand words in the English language. Well, and that's the thing is like the the reason he's attributed to those is because he listened to the women um, mm -hmm. in, in in the time because slang is introduced uh, primarily by um, people of lower social status, primarily the women, and they impart it onto their children because mm -hmm. it's how the women talk to each other and the kids hear how the women talk because the kids are the ones in the house with the women and then it all goes wow. through like yeah. um, So like all Shakespeare did was listen. And he listened to how women were speaking because that was like the way common folks were talking to their children. And then that let the language endure because then suddenly you have two generations of these people who are speaking this language. And then it's getting introduced to the aristocracy up top. So they think they're hot shit. When <laughs> the commoners are like, we've been new. We know that this language is <laughs> It's cool. And like Shakespeare never died. He just became language. Yeah. yeah. That's a good point. And then what about your favorite theater artist? Yeah, um, my favorite theater artist would have to be Anne Bogart. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm a viewpoints baby. Um, if, <laughs> if any of y'all saw my show, you would see all of the viewpointing that happened with it. Um, it's just, it's the easiest, simplest vocabulary for me as an artist. Um, you know, a, a lot of folks talk about their method or, or just what works. Um, and for me, uh, I'm a very intellectual person before I'm an emotional person, um, just as a setting, I don't know, uh, trauma, ha. Huh? Um, right, right. Anne Bogart lets me intellectualize um, to get out of my own way so that the emotion can just flow freely. 
Um, and I don't think I would have learned how to tap into my, um, my heart had I not learned how to tap into my head using viewpoints. Boy, awesome. it has been a long time since I've done viewpoints. Now I want to like go back and revisit it. Oh, every time I re I'm like, oh yeah. Theater <laughs> yeah. is a means of controlling time and space. <laughs> I did a workshop with Alexandra Billings who oh. teaches viewpoints and would like I listen, I don't sweat too many people on stage. Like I I can hold my old on, on stage. She's the only person I've been on stage with in front of an audience that I was terrified. Oh, and I was yeah. just like, I just got to hold on to this force of nature and uh, oh, yeah. and see where it goes. But yeah, and uh, she's an amazing teacher, amazing viewpoints teacher. Yeah. That's how I feel about Dana Martin. Same thing. Dana mm -hmm. just, um, she just, she gets to the thing um, so essentially and so gracefully and so elegantly that I just... Um, she tells you to jump and you jump yeah right I, uh, it's the same thing though it's she bases a lot of her stuff in like kim rubenstein work and in um viewpointing and, and all of that is just uh it just works for me yeah, it's yeah. nice right on um how about do you have a favorite play is it a shakespeare play um so my favorite play and i swear to god this is dated <laughs> so if any of you people want to produce it you better hire me to direct this <laughs> it's called mr culper um by i'm not going to tell you the author you have to find it yourself you bastard no, look at that. <laughs> it's mr culper um and it's about um couple a invites couple b over for a dinner party and uh, couple B is like some, they're kind of weirdos. And couple A wants to fuck with couple B um, to just observe them being weirdos together. Um, and then they say when they arrive, couple B arrives at dinner, couple A is like, hey, there's a dead body in our trunk. And couple B is like, okay, funny joke, haha, whatever. And they start dinner. And then they hear <laughs> inside the trunk. And then um, the husband from couple A is a chaos researcher and this entire play, an entire like thing is a research project for him to see how chaotic he can make living people. And um, it takes them five pages to order a pizza and um, a pizza boy, a pizza boy gets uh, beaten to death and uh, everyone vomits. Every single character vomits at least once. Um it's hilarious. <laughs> it's hilarious. It has every bodily fluid on stage at some point. Uh, Mr. Right what my... was the last name? A-O-L-P-E-R-T. Mr. Colbert. There it um, is. I found it. <clears throat> yeah, it's uh it's my favorite play because it's 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 absurd and it's gruesome and it's um it pushes all of my buttons as a as a director. Um, it gives me a lot of really, really fun problems to solve. Um, and I, I think a good, a really well-made play to me as a director is a puzzle box. Yeah. And this one in particular is like, it's the Rubik's Cube I've had since I was like 15. And I've just been playing with it forever. And so I know where every single piece fits and where it all just goes. And I, every time I read that script, I'm like, give me the money to do <laughs> this goddamn play 
David uh, Geiselman? Geiselman? Yeah, Geiselman. Yeah, he's a German. I just found it on Thrift Books. I'm gonna fucking buy it. Uh, um, you will. You will shit yourself laughing. <laughs> Which <laughs> is. It sounds like it might be part of the point. It's. Uh, yeah. It's. It's. It's brilliant. They all end up like naked at the front of the stage, weeping as babies at the very end, and it's just. Getting there is a whole. Thing. <laughs> um, awesome. Yeah. Amazing. So, uh, that sounds like a ton of, and you want to direct? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I, because listen, I would play every single character in that play if I could, uh -huh. um, but there's a, there's a gag that like, they say they've killed Mr. Colbert, but then of course they haven't. Um, but then the lady from couple B is like, if Mr. Colbert was actually here, I would cut his face and I would rip his tongue out and I would take his balls and feed him to him and I would burn him up and I would blah, blah, blah. And then as she's talking, the linen closet opens up and Mr. Colbert's dead body falls out of it. And he's had everything done to him that she said she would do to him. Oh my, oh God. my God. And so what I would like and the thing that I would probably do is I would play Mr. Colbert. So I would direct them and then I would be the dead body in the linen closet. Right, there you go. There you go. The <laughs> That's fucking great. I want to direct it so badly. I just need a producer to sit behind it and trust me. Right on. It sounds like a lot of fun, actually. Shoot. It sounds like a lot of fun. Um, so we have a fun little thing that we do here whenever we cover playwrights, and uh, they are, what are your, insert stinger here, what are your dream roles? Do you have any dream roles? <sighs> yeah. Um, I've been really, really lucky in that I have honestly played almost every dream role that I've had already. Wow, that's um, amazing. So I played Blanche in Streetcar. Um, <laughs> I played Viola and I played Vesti. Oh. Um, I played uh, the MC in Cabaret. Um, I played Moritz in Spring Awakening. I played Angel in Ren. Um, I've, I've been really lucky in that like, when, I, when I've gone for those parts, I've just, I've been very fortunate to be the right body and the right voice at the right time um, for that world that that director was building. You know, I really, really would like to play Wolfie in Hair. Um, uh, and then I would really like to play the MC in Moulin Rouge. Um, oh, sure. Uh, aside from that, I'm pretty good. I'd really like to play the MC again. Um, just because I, I played it when I was a senior in college. And uh -huh. now that I have, um, now that I'm sober and I've had good treatment and I have much better training and I'm just in a much healthier place. When I first played the MC, I was not in a healthy place. And mm -hmm. it, um, that role is not a role you take on mm -hmm. if you're not in a good place. Uh, yeah, right. it'll, it'll consume you. Um, and Blanche is the same way. Blanche will, Blanche will eat you alive if you're not ready for her. Um, and I wasn't ready for either of them when I played them. Mm -hmm. So I would like to do them again. Uh, but like, that's just because I, I like honing my craft. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. I, I want to, I want to sink my teeth back into those because now I have sharper teeth. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. <laughs> I, I always make the joke that when I was in college for my theater conservatory, the things that I was only ever called back for were like old drunk women. <laughs> Um, I never funny. played anybody my age. And then just a couple, like my senior year, the one big role that I got was a 35 year old woman 
who wanted to be pregnant and was in like an extra extramarital affair with a married man. Okay. And like a couple years ago, I and it was like a British dark comedy called The Memory of Water by Sheila Stevenson. And just I a couple years ago, you do? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah I, and just a couple years ago at the age of 35, I was like, hmm, maybe I should give that role another try. I bet it would make a lot better sense now than it does <laughs> when I was 21. When you're playing a homeopathic remedy woman, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, this has been a fucking delight. Truly, truly. I, for one, have enjoyed talking with you and getting to know you a little better. We need to, like, definitely stay in touch and see if we can get you back on the pod for a mini-series or something like that. But, um... This before... is a D&D episode. What was that? Let's do a D&D &D episode. Do oh, a D &D. My, oh, my God. Oh, we could do a D&D &D episode. <laughs> and then I can tell you all how I woefully still don't understand a fucking thing going on. <laughs> I'll DM. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you... Um, do you have anything coming up that you would like to plug? I know we definitely need to talk about the the workshop, the show you're working on with Maddox. Um, yeah, so um, two, two things. Um, I am uh, one of the regular poets at the Poetry Lounge every Tuesday. Um, it is at the Greenway Court Theater. Um, oh, line up start. Oh, yeah, yeah there is great space. And it's yeah. the longest running uh, mic in LA. Uh, and for good reason. It's a really, really dope space. I, I, you can catch me there every Tuesday if you ever want to meet me in person and just like see what's up, say hi. I promise I, I have resting bitch face. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm well aware of it. I have wide awake bitch face. Um, <laughs> just approach me. I promise. I, I just look like I don't want you to fuck with me. I promise you, you can say hello. Um, <laughs> And then uh, I uh, I also I am going to be doing um, the reading for Embers Born West, um, which is which is Maddox Peddington's um, piece that is just fucking remarkable that I've had the exquisite gift of participating in their process. Um, and that's with the Mad Lab Theater. Um, they're doing like a new play development, like L.A. Born and Bred workshop. Um, and this is mm. part three of their workshop. So that's going to be Sunday. October the 2nd at noon. Um, and that piece is, uh, Maddox and I come from a very similar background in the sense that we're both mixed race. Uh, we both have this indigenous identity and also this like, this trans identity um, from different perspectives, but there is so much queer resonance, um, you know, with their writing for me that I, um, like I should have, I, I finished doing the process, the first part of this process with them uh, as Jay, uh, their their lead character, and went home back to Colorado, and like just sat with the land for a little bit, and was like, mm. "Oh, that's right." Like <laughs> it um it it called a certain part of my soul back to my own land in that very um very specific way uh, that Jay uh, and Maddox just do. Um, and it, it, I'm very happy that I get to continue on with this process with them because it has been such an amazing process. Also, shout out to Dana Schwartz, uh, who's one of the producers of it. Just, just exquisite, having so awesome. much fun. Awesome. Yeah, here, here. Gonna have to make sure I get out and. Uh, Scott, did you have any spotlights going on? No, not at this point. We'll we'll start hyping. 
Midsummer Nightmare soon. I'm directing a musical workshop of Midsummer yeah. Nightmare, a sequel to a Midsummer Night's Dream. It'll be on October 21st. I guess I'm pitching. I am doing it. <laughs> I, I lied. I lied to everybody. Uh, October 21st to 22nd, uh, written and composed by Michael Shaw Fisher. Uh, CJ's in it and Bailey's in it. And it's an amazing cast of uh, it's when we talked about it and, and you know, working with a playwright as they're developing something. And it's like, we, we needed a word. And so the word that we came up with was Jubilee, uh, to describe the project. And it is, it's, we have, uh, great representation in the show. It's a rainbow of faces and bodies and, um, some great queer representation in it in terms of the casting. And we're going to turn Midsummer Night's Dream on his fucking head. Oh, I love that. Uh, um, Again, cannot thank you enough for coming here and chatting with us. Yeah, and what a pleasure. Yeah, I can't wait to, to hang out, hang out in person. Any old fucking time. And yeah, just hang out. And we should, now, we're, now we need to get together a D&D session. Yeah, that's what we did. <laughs> I'm a noob, y'all. I'm still that's not all right. very good I at it. I haven't played in years and like, uh, no, it'll be great. It'll be great. I, uh, we know a lot of people. I run, um, I run like campy 1980s slasher um one hitters so it's like you come oh, word. You, chill, you chill for like three hours you do a whole campaign and then you're done that's Ooh, cool yeah i feel are... like that would be a way to hone my skills yeah training wheels yeah it's really nice so i i really my i'm digressing here but one of my dream things to do with D D sometime is i want to just be dropped in the middle of a fantasy world as myself and be like where the fuck am i <laughs> Yep. You roll your own stats. Yeah. You, uh, you take a test and you figure out what your actual stats are and then go in. Yeah. Be a level one CJ. Just give it a try. <laughs> level one CJ. <laughs> um, so thank you everyone for joining us for our artist spotlight bonus episode. Um, keep an eye out for our next playwright miniseries, Bertolt Brecht. That's right, everybody. We're doing Brecht. We haven't even come up with a fun pod name for that yet, but we no, will. Yeah. Uh, uh, it should be called the podcast about to podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have our, ama our amazing friend of the pod and guest coming to talk with us, Travis Santos Gatz. Travis actually has his own Brecht estate approved adaptation that he produced this last year. So Trav knows his shit when it comes to Bertolt Brecht. So we're coming at you with that. Uh, and you'll definitely want to tune in for that. Uh, you can follow us on all the socials. You can also follow Pastiche Queen at at Pastiche, P-A-S-T-I-C-H-E, Queen on the gram. Scott? Thank you, CJ. A big shout out to Ryan Thomas Johnson, who writes our theme song and our stingers. And he's an amazing human being. Uh, I'll give a shout out to Pam Quinn because... She's not really doing anything for this episode, but she's she's just a part <laughs> she's, of our. She writes songs for us, and she's a guest, and she's, she's part of the team. Pam. Right. Yeah, Pam. Yeah, she, we love her. Uh, and then finally, to the great Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Annie Baker, who writes every single one of our Thanks, episodes. Guys. Yeah. Uh, Remind me I have to tell you that thing afterwards. Okay. Yeah. And she doesn't even know it. And one day, Annie Baker, we're gonna buy you a beer. Rate, review, subscribe, everybody. It really does help. Engage. Five stars. You know you want to. Yes. Yeah. Listen to Dan. <laughs> Thank Dan, you. It was a pleasure. Later, everybody. We love you. Meow, meow, meow. Meow, meow, meow. Bye. Bye. Bye.